You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 85. And today we're asking the question, why does safety get harder as systems get safer? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven. I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. In the last episode, episode 84, we discussed a paper by Daniel Katz, one of the foundational papers that shapes, well, modern safety thinking, even though at the time it was very much a social psychology of organizations paper. And from the response to that episode, it sounds like quite a few of our listeners are interested in hearing us talk about some of the older papers that we consider to be classics, required reading, or definitely shaping ideas about modern contemporary safety science. So today we have another one for you. It was suggested by Tom Lawrenson on LinkedIn. So Drew, how about we jump straight in the paper and then we can talk about more about the ideas as we go. Sure, David, let's do it. So the paper's called The Paradoxes of Almost Totally Safe Transportation Systems. It was published in the journal Safety Science in 2001, and the author was Professor Rene Amalberti. David, you've been to some of these resilience conferences. Have you met Amalberti? No, the, in Liège in 2015, he presented by video conference. And he didn't travel to Kalmar in Sweden a couple of years afterwards. So I don't think I've ever been able to be in the same room as him, no. Yeah, so I've never met Amal Berti. He's a bit of a, I guess, pillar of the safety research community, but he's not as big a, a public speaker or self-promoter as some of the resilience people, which I don't mean in either a pejorative or a you know, positive sense. It, it's just he, he tends to write more than he gives public talks. Um, he's associated with over 300 publications, dating right back to the mid-1980s, sort of around near the tail of Reason's career. Uh, and Amalberti is still publishing today. He published like seven papers last year, seven the year before. Um, but if you work in safety and you haven't heard of Amalberti, it's probably for a couple of reasons. The first one is that he writes mainly in French. And this is something that I only sort of realised later in my career, David, there's a lot of safety work, particularly in that human factors psychology end of things, which is only in French. And then we get the English version of it when someone popularizes it 10 or 20 years later. Have you found that? Do you, do you speak and read French? Uh, no, I absolutely don't speak and read French. But um, we know that workers imagine work as done sort of is borrowed from French economics tradition. We can see in this paper, as we talk through, we can see some of the ideas in safety differently and safety one, and safety two, you know, maybe the origins of that in, in some of Amalberti's work as well. So I think you're right, Drew, Drew, I think that's the way it happens. And being someone who only speaks one language is, I don't get the opportunity to explore too much of the safety science until it becomes available in English. Yeah. So, so the other thing about Amalberti is, I actually don't know if this is true in French, but in English, there's no like single big idea associated with Amalberti. So, you know, unlike people like Decker and Reason and Levison and um, Holnagel, there's no sort of like single thing that you'd say, oh, Amalberti did this. Um, he's created a few of his own models about the way safety works, but none of them have sort of caught on in that really catchy way 
that safety ideas sometimes do. I think the the one that he would does I think get credited for by some of those other theorists is is the idea that adding more rules is not going to make your system safer. And I think definitely um, Sidney Decker and, and others credit Amalberte with with that idea of doing more and more safety is not going to make your system safer safer beyond a point. Yes. So, so I, th- I think that's interesting in that while he doesn't like have an idea that is very popularized, everyone who does research or other writing in safety always cites Amalberti. So if you sort of want to know, get yourself a reading list in safety, just to pick up the list of people who have cited this particular paper. And that list is like a who's who catalogue of safety research. It's like everyone who is anyone has at some point or other cited Amalberti's work. I mean, you'll see in this paper, which was published, remember, 2001, so 10 years before Holnagel was even writing Safety 1 or Safety 2 or Decker was writing Safety differently. And you'll see that in Amalberti's work are the seeds of a lot of stuff that came later. So, Drew, this is a this is more more so than research. This is a sort of a general purpose safety model where this is a theory building type of paper or or Amalberti's sort of descriptions of of the world as he sees them in you know particularly transportation systems and he whether it was just at this point in time or whether it was a thread through most of his career he has written a lot about about rail systems about aviation and and a range of other sort of transport related industries more so than other industries and is that sort of typical drew that researchers tend to be associated with you know researching and and thinking in in certain industries it's i suppose it's definitely true of healthcare it often is I have to admit, I was trying to work out what Amalberti's original industry is, because I kind of sus- I've got a suspicion he's actually a medical doctor, but I haven't been able to find confirmation of that. But you look at this paper, and he's clearly talking about industries like aerospace, but he's also done some of that European stuff about talking about deep sea fishing, and then much more recently, he's been very into healthcare resilience. So at any given point in time, you could sort of try to say, oh, this is Amalberti's industry. <laughs> but you look over the entire career and he's had his hand in everything. So, Drew, do you want to talk a little bit about or kick us off with the uh, with sort of the principles that Amalberti sort of lays out that sort of at the foundation of his ideas about safety? Uh, sure. So, so I think this episode is going to be a lot of giving lists of three or four principles, just because that's the way Amalberti has written the paper. So we'll just go through it section by section, lay out the things that he says in each section. So so the first section, the principles that Amal Bodhi's laying out, are the way most industries do safety. And he's got three things that he says. He says, firstly, systems are designed with theoretically high levels of safety performance. So they start off, you know, the design says it's safe. But then when we have technical failings, either in the design or maintenance, or human failings, it brings the system down from the optimal level of safety. Just like, you know, you've got noise interrupting a good signal. So this is like almost the pure system safety point of view. Systems are good, they're bad because humans make mistakes. And the goal of safety is engineer out those human mistakes. The second principle is that the safety of physical things, so the things that are purely by design, is increasing over time because technology is getting better. So over time, even though we care equally about technical failings and human failings, safety priority naturally gets steered towards reducing human error because that's the main bit that gets left. And then the third thing is that reporting is fundamental to improving safety. 
So safety is basically a cycle of working out what's going wrong, finding where it's coming from and fixing it, whether that's coming from problems with the design or problems with human error or organizational problems. So he says that he's not critical of this in the way that some other authors are. He says that this is self-evident. It makes sense. This is the way we do things. The trouble is that it's diminishing returns. So as systems become safer and safer, each of these things starts to lose its relevance and effectiveness. And he's got like a really specific number. And David, we'll talk a little bit about Amalberti's use of numbers, which I'm very skeptical of. But he claims that there's like this asymptote, this frontier that can't be crossed. And he says it's somewhere around five by 10 to the minus seven. So like one in a hundred thousand. And that as we get close to that frontier, our safety activities start to have devious effects. And I don't know where that likelihood comes from, whether it's a, you know, the closest that I can get is it's sort of like maybe at the time it was the target mitigated event likelihood for the aviation sector or something like that, where he was able to use that as a threshold for what we'll talk about in terms of ultra safe systems. I I can only assume it's come out of aviation at the time. It does sound very aviation-ish. And sorry, I misspoke. Five by 10 to the minus seven is five in 10 million, not in a hundred thousand. Um, but he, he shifts the numbers around a bit later in the paper. Yeah, so his, the, his general idea is that you've got this fundamental limit that's set by technology. And he thinks that's where you, across industry varies a little bit about how you count it. But generally, that's where the type of technology that we have at the turn of the millennium is sitting. And there's a hard limit that, of what that technology is capable of. True. So what Amabert is saying here is we design our systems to be safe, but there's always problems with those systems, either technical latent factors or human errors. So we keep trying to engineer even better systems, and we focus a lot of priority on trying to reduce people making mistakes for their role in in the loop. And we drive lots of reporting to find these errors and find these issues and sort of detect and repair. As David Woods would say, you know, we have these really effective detect and repair mechanisms in the organization. And that's how we're managing the safety of our systems over time. That's how we've been managing them for 100 years. Yeah, and I'll just give a quick preview of where this is heading because Amalberti has a really clear reason why he doesn't think it's possible to squeeze too close. And that is that he doesn't believe that zero is the optimal number of human errors. So he doesn't think that zero is, it's not that he doesn't think that zero is achievable, he thinks it's undesirable. So that once we push past the optimum number of human errors, things actually start to get worse because we've got too few errors. And he's got a quite an interesting rationale for that. But his idea is that we get into this like paradoxical space where we're over-optimizing trying to get things safe. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that discussion, Drew. Got a few ideas. So, you know, we, I mean, the, the title of this paper has, you know, the paradox of almost totally safe transportation systems. So paradox is is this way of describing two seemingly opposing views that wouldn't be possible to coexist that in fact, you know, do and need to coexist. So Drew, we're going to use the word paradox probably a few times, but do you want to sort of talk about the next system now, the next section now where we've got this, um, you know, this division of our systems into three broad sort of types? Yeah. So, so we've got another list of three things now. And this particular division is one that Amalberti has played with throughout his career. So it appears in quite different versions in different parts of his work. 
But the broad idea is that at different levels of safety, you need different safety strategies. And so in this paper, he divides it into dangerous systems, regulated systems, and ultra-safe systems. So the dangerous systems are things where there's a really high risk of an accident. He says greater than one accident per 1,000 events, like bungee jumping or mountain climbing. Um, if bungee jumping or mountain climbing was genuinely as dangerous as one per 1,000, <laughs> no one would be bungee jumping or mountain climbing. Um, this is Amalberti not quite understanding. It's not that he doesn't understand. I think he's just very lax. He pulls out these numbers without really doing the calculations. I think it's referenced though, Drew, because I think I saw uh, the statistics for um, people attempting summit attempts of Mount Everest, the fatality rate's like one in nine for summit attempts of Mount Everest or something. So maybe he did find that mountain climbing statistic somewhere. It might be, you know, climbs above 5,000 you know, metres or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that climbing Mount Everest is a kind of special case that is less about danger and more about like semi-suicide. Like bungee jumping without a rope. Yeah. Got it. Got it. You know, the, the, the odds of jumping off a bridge without a like controlled recreation system. It's probably about one is, in nine. It's probably about the same. Yeah. Probably, yeah. But anyway, his idea is that there are, the, there are some activities that are not professional activities. They're risk-taking that we do because of the risk. And safety about those activities is highly individual. So he's basically saying, you know, let, let's just put that aside for the moment. There's some things that just fall way outside my model. The second one he talks about is regulated systems. And these are ones where he says the risk of an accident lies between one per 1,000 events and one per 100,000 events. Um, he puts in the list here, driving, chemical industries, chartered flights. I did the maths on all of these just because I was annoyed and no, they are not between one per 1,000 events, one per 100,000 events. But general idea here is that these are not as safe as, say, regularly scheduled civil aviation. You know, th these are regulated, but they're not ultra, ultra regulated. Safety is in the hands of professionals. We're using regulations and procedures. We're using error-resistant designs. We're putting in better training, trying to get people to make fewer mistakes, get people to follow. And all of those things are working in this space. All of those things are successful at driving down errors. But then he says, we've got these ultra-safe systems that's as low as like, you know, one per a million. Things like regularly scheduled civilian flights, railways, the nuclear industries. And he's saying there... There's almost a limit of one accident per, he says, million safety units. He says these tend to be aging systems. So these are things that are around since the 1960s, 1970s. They're very, very highly regulated. In fact, he says over-regulated. They're rigid, highly unadaptive. And when we have an accident, it's usually got a combination of factors that where the combination is a bit of a surprise and difficult to predict. Because you know, if we could predict it in these industries, we would have prevented that accident. He also says that the dis a distinction for safety professionals between ultra-safe systems and regulated systems is that the timeframes that safety managers have an effect over is different. That with a regulated system, a safety manager can get results within a couple of years. So they can see and be rewarded for their own performance. In an ultra-safe system, the safety manager is working for their successor. <laughs> and the results of their work are going to be seen after they've left the job because we're looking at timeframes of eight or more years before we see the genuine effectiveness of any safety change. And as a result, it tends to be more of a political rather than scientific idea whether a particular thing is safe. And you know, we can absolutely see that in particular airlines. So, you know, Air France had a few accidents a few years ago, which was 
from a statistical point of view, not significant at all, but it's obviously a big political thing when one airline gets news attention and headlines. Uh, similarly with Boeing and the 737 MAX. One aircraft, only a couple of events, but big political issue about how they're managing safety. Yeah, absolutely, Drew. And I think, um, I know in later versions of this paper, you know, Amabetti tries to put different industries in different brackets, like putting construction and, and some industries in the regulated systems and and you know commercial fishing in sort of the dangerous category and he sort of played with different industries uh but i think i think there's different just like you've talked about the numbers i think there's sort of a different definition of a safety incident that he uses in certain different industries like nuclear uh meltdown versus maybe a single fatality event in driving and things like that so i think we've got to get away of the detail and just understand the broad like you said drew advised the broad idea here which i think is quite useful is that there's systems with a different level of safety that uh, may warrant different safety management approaches yeah and and for the rest of this paper he's really talking specifically about those ones that he calls ultra safe so he's basically saying airlines nuclear industry railway how does our need to manage safety change as we push up really really close to that apparent limit of how safe things can get and do we have diminishing returns or even counterproductivity when we push the same strategies too far? Uh, should we continue or? Yeah, let's um, let's go. So, so Amal Bertie's uh, interested in, in I suppose he's not he's interested in these ultra safe systems, like you said. And and so, Drew, maybe we should start to talk about the problems in these ultra safe systems, and and because that that helps us lay the foundation in why maybe we might need to rethink our safety management safety management approach. So Amalberti says that the safer the system gets, the more that we run into into problems. So so do you want to start by describing what some of these problems are? So the first problem, I have to admit that I was struggling a little bit with the language of this part of the paper, trying to understand exactly what he's getting at. So my apology if my, in my paraphrasing, I've misunderstood some of the point. The, the original bit's fairly clear. He says that we've got fairly loose definitions of human error and accidents. And I think that's both well known and well understood. Um, you know, whether you agree or disagree with any particular definition, what counts as human error, what exactly you define as an accident or incident, is really contentious in safety. He says that that doesn't matter so long as the system is not very safe, because it's still fairly obvious when we're not very safe what counts as an error or what counts as an incident or an accident. But as we try to get like that last drop of safety, then it really, really does matter. So, you know, when we've got rid of the pilot flew the plane into the ground, what then do we count as pilot error? Is it the pilot not noticing an alarm for 30 seconds? We have to get more and more into things which are contentious about whether they count as errors or not in order to be able to count errors. We need to get more and more into what he calls quasi-incidents rather than things that are uncontestably bad things that are happening because we just have got so few uncontestable things that are bad that we can count or manage or investigate. Yeah, and I think Drew, that's you know, that's aligns with my understanding is is that um, you know, the the weaker and weaker the weaker and weaker the signals that we're looking for become, like you said, in when we're having an accident every week or every day, common cause type ac yeah, accidents that where we it just becomes clear as day what what can be improved, then the organization's resources are adequately consumed by fixing all of those obvious problems. When those obvious problems aren't there, then we need to look much further if we're going to follow that same approach. And it's not just that those signals are weaker, but that they're ambiguous and reasonable people can disagree 
about whether something even is a human error, whether it even is a problem that needs to be fixed. So that's that's why, because Amal Birdie's, remember, he's already said that he thinks with these industries, we've got things almost as technically good as technology can get them, given that they were originally designed back a few decades ago. So what's left is the human error. And so Amal Birdie then takes a bit of a left turn and spends a chunk of the paper sort of talking about what he considers to be the summary of developments in human error up to the year 2000. Some of this will be like very familiar to our listeners. Some of them might not be. What I find interesting is this was when I was doing my thesis and none of this stuff was in the domain that I was working in, which is system safety, safety of railways, aircraft. All of this stuff would have been quite new and unfamiliar to people working in safety of aircraft and railways around that time. I've actually got some of the slides we use for talking about human error and they look nothing like this. But there was stuff that was, Amalberti's saying, like this is commonplace with the people who've actually been studying human error um, and doing it rigorously. So he points out four main things. The first one is he says that mistakes are cognitively useful and cannot be totally eliminated. So basically, it's not just that we use mistakes to learn, but even once we're experts, we're still making mistakes and recovering from those mistakes. And he says that, you know, it's pretty well understood that what the difference between an expert and an amateur isn't that the amateur makes mistakes and the expert doesn't. It's that the expert just easily recognizes and corrects their mistake as part of normal work, whereas the amateur might make mistakes and they go uncorrected, causing problems. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, and this is where we start to get on some of these really interesting points is that if we genuinely have, uh, if we genuinely think we're trying to create error-free systems and, and not have people make mistakes, then there's a question mark raised here about the ability of people to develop expertise in unforeseen, unfamiliar, dynamic, emergent type situations. It's like if you rode a bike with with training wheels for 15 years and then suddenly were put at the top of a hill without your training wheels and, and let go at the top. Your ability to navigate and manage that particular situation that will inev inevitably come in all of these systems is highly compromised compared to if you were you know, able to explore mistakes of a lesser kind all the way through your career. That's how I at least interpret some of this idea. Yes. So sometimes this gets talked about as error competence or even just, you know, personal resilience, the ability to just constantly make and recover from mistakes. Um, and that ability to recover from your own mistakes also, of course, remember, is similar to the ability to recover from technological mistakes because the system isn't perfect either. And it's going to throw errors at you, even if you don't make the errors yourself. Um, the second thing is that in order to understand the effect that mistakes have, we need to look at the whole system. So you can't look at a mistake in isolation of the context, even to start calling it a mistake. Um, and he talks about two different theories. Um, he talks about uh, the Swiss cheese model from James Reason, which sees the sort of relationship as a set of layers where, you know, our individual mistakes come from and reveal organizational failures. And then he talks about HRO theories where we don't think about things in terms of layers. We think of them as organizational dynamics. And he doesn't like pick and choose between those theories. He just says like, these are just two examples of, to understand mistakes, you've got to have a model of the whole system. You can't just look at the human. I think that's somewhere where we start to see some of the, I mean, not some of it, we start to see the insightfulness of of Amalberti around this work, because I mean, this is a similar point in time when we were looking at 
you know, skill-based, knowledge-based, rule-based errors and reason sort of culpability matrix around, around errors and looking at error as a choice. And, and I think what Amoverdi does here, although not really clearly and not trying to wrap any model around it, but we just talk about that, the, I mean, one of our hot principles that, you know, the context and the systems drive the behavior and, or as Sidney Decker would say, you know, the behavior is a symptom of trouble deeper within the system. And these are, this is 20 years ago, Drew, and I think these are fairly, these are new ideas at the time. Or at least they're new in safety, because I think Amalberti is directly importing these from non-safety work on human error. The, the third thing he says is that individual mistakes and whether those mistakes lead to accidents comes from the whole system moving towards the boundaries of performance. So I don't think we've talked about it directly on the podcast before, but this is like Rasmussen's envelope of performance, where we've got pressure from production, pressure from economics, pressure from safety and Unless you've got accidents, you've got just this constant pressure from other things moving you closer and closer to the boundary of safety. Yeah, I think, Drew, that, that's, um, I'll definitely put, put um, a vote in to discuss that paper, Risk, Risk Management in a Dynamic Society, a Modelling Problem of Rasmussen's. That would also read, very, the citation list for that paper would also read very much like a who's who of safety that have cited that paper. But yeah, I think, I think this idea that, that Amalberti jumps on and 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 very clearly tied to Rasmussen's work is that idea where organizations have this extended period without without accidents, extended period. They're, they're of course, maybe going to be um, optimizing around non-safety performance outcomes of the business, like like we said, like uh, resource utilization, uh, cost and productivity and all of those things. And that will gradually uh, reduce that any safety margin that they had in the business. And that's inevitable, Amalberti would say. And the final point he makes is that there aren't really error-producing mechanisms in the brain, which sounds fairly simple to say, but this is in direct contrast to a lot of the things that we were doing in safety at the time and are still doing. So I have to admit that I've literally got one of my slides that shows Norm, Norman's like cycle of decision making and the way we make like errors in perception, errors in interpretation, errors in goal formation. Those models are sometimes a useful way of thinking about what types of errors exist, but they're incredibly incorrect about how people's brains actually work to produce errors. They're like how a computer would produce errors, but they're not how humans produce errors. I have to admit, I don't fully understand, though, how the brain does do this. The way Alberti puts it is, he says, and I'll just have to quote directly, fundamentally, an operator does not regulate the risk of error. He regulates a high-performance objective at the lowest possible execution cost. In the human mind, error is a necessary component of this optimised performance result. So I think what he's saying is that our brains aren't thinking about errors. Our brains are trying to produce a result. And we're trying to do the least amount of thinking that we need to do in order to produce that result. And we don't have conscious control over which mode of thinking we're doing or how our brains are optimizing what it's doing and not doing. We just do it. And then sometimes errors come out of that process and they're just a natural thing that then feed back in and we correct and speed up or slow down or pay more attention or pay less attention. And all of that works at around a sort of stable low rate of errors, not a zero rate of errors. 
yeah, if we didn't weren't making any errors, our brains wouldn't be able to notice the errors and speed up or slow down or adjust or pay more attention in order to cope with the errors. Yeah, and I don't not going to it's been a long while since I studied psychology. Actually, I was I was already finished studying psychology when this paper was uh was published. So but I think what he's also saying in here is that there's an adaptive uh necessity for humans to learn from experience and part of that is on making mistakes and i think we've got these sayings you know you can't put an old head on young shoulders and you know people learn something from for themselves they don't learn it from someone else's mistakes and so i think he's also saying in this ecological role of error in performance that's sort of saying that it's part of the human condition to accept and in fact uh seek not seek mistakes but actually that it, that is actually an important part of the way that we learn and develop our understanding of the world and our expertise. Yeah, it certainly says that if when he says that if we're not making mistakes, then our brain is just going to pay less attention to things until we do make a mistake, which alerts us that we need to be paying more attention. Because there's always other parts we're trying to like speed up the task, we're trying to get more production out, we're trying to do it better. And errors are what tells us we're pushing too much in one of those directions. And I think, Drew, I just, you know, while we're pointing out some of the ideas in this paper, um, I mean, I see what Amalberti is saying in this section is very similar to what Eric Holnagel ended up writing a whole book about, which is the efficiency thoroughness trade-off or the ETO principle, ETTO. Um, and this is sort of seems square to me what Amalberti is talking about here, which is that we are always balancing the performance objective, the, the, the thoroughness with how, how efficient we can actually achieve, you know, that minimum performance outcome. So... We should be fairly clear, the implication of this is not, at least from Amalberti's point of view, stop trying to reduce human error. Because he says that you know, up to a certain point, that is absolutely the way to make a system safer, is you drive down the number of errors by making the system more error-proof. So, you know, making it harder to make errors, easier to do the right thing, and providing education and training to the operators. And we can see that, you know, really basically in design of cars. We make cars safer by giving them better controls, better protection, and training drivers. But he says once you get down to a certain point, and I've got a whole rant in my note here about his calculation of this point, which I'm just going to skip here and just say, you know, when reading Amalberti, stick to the ideas, ignore the numbers. Once you get to a certain point, you can't drive the errors down further just by those error controls. He says you can get it a bit better from automation and strictly enforced procedures. So that's one way that aeroplanes are safer than cars, is they've just got more automation built in, and they've got much more stricter controls about who can fly them, when they can fly them, how they can fly them. But even using automation and those procedures, we, that very quickly tails off again. We get a certain amount of improvement from that, but then we get into a zone where by reducing errors, we're also reducing the operator's skills. And that means we're losing situation awareness, error management, safety is going down in one area by making fewer errors, but up in the other area by not handling the errors that do come. And then I think also, Drew, I suppose if we stay on that aviation example, I suppose that's then the opportunity to actually provide error producing situations in, in like simulations or simulators and, and regular simulation activities to actually create opportunities for people to maybe make errors and explore unfamiliar situations and emergent issues and and really maintain some of those skills and expertise that they may not be getting through routine flying operations. Yeah, that, that's something that Amal Birdie doesn't talk a lot about, but it would be totally consistent with what he says, that we could have this like split system where you make the core system safer through automation, but we maintain the operator's expertise through other methods. 
through simulations, through training, through things like that, that expose them to error-making situations. And then we would have the best of both worlds. But Amalberti doesn't talk about that. And I, I think he's still, he would still argue that we've, we're still limited in how much we could get. Yeah, Andrew, we actually talked about that, about um, using simulators in the maritime sector for actually developing capability, resilient capability in an earlier episode. So people might want to go back and have a listen to that one. I just wanted to make a practical point here, like since you mentioned the numbers. So if you run a large operation that you consider to be reasonably high risk uh, and you're only getting a handful of reports, maybe a year, so a couple of near misses or a couple of, of incidents, I think what Alberto is saying here is you have sort of two choices. If you think that you're not really getting the insight into what's going on, then you, you can improve your reporting culture and you can continue with these existing safety management activities of sort of correcting problems that, that are identified. Or if you think that level of reliability is reflective of your actual performance, then, you know, Amalbert is saying that you really need to rethink some of the ways that you are managing safety. And I just remember thinking, Drew, about, you know, organisations showing me, you know, fully green audit results, fully green critical risk uh, control checks, fully green incident rates, sort of like a dashboard, just a sea of green. And this is what this paper is, I think, really talking to in that that's that's a business that is maybe safe to a point, but is uh, is not going to get any safer continuing to do what they're doing. The, the only bit of that I disagree with, David, is that I don't think Amal Birdie is pushing strongly for the rethink how you do safety. Um, Amal Birdie isn't, and I don't think he's ever been strongly, an evangelist for a new way of doing safety. He's more just carefully pointing out why we have the problems that we have and suggesting that if you want to try to solve them, these are like the limits of what can be achieved through certain types of solutions. And I think it's natural that that approach would push you a bit towards the new view. But there's a reason why Amalberti is cited by all the new view people as pointing out the problems with the old view rather than like a leader of the new view of safety. Yeah, I'm conflating probably a few publications. I think shortly after this paper in 2003, Amalberti published a book which is um, Navigating Safety, Necessary Compromises and Trade-Offs sort of in the Pursuit of Safety or, or something like that. And it's another really good book. And I think in there he is a little bit more outside of these academic papers. He's a little bit more direct when he just sort of really calls out the European air traffic management about adding 300 new rules into the aviation system every year and it not getting any safer. And we need to really rethink the, you know, the continued compliance approach to how we're managing. So I, I sort of have been carrying this view that he has been a little bit more, we need to maybe not change, but we definitely need to add to the approaches that we've got for managing safety because we're not making our systems any safer. Yeah, no, no, that's fair enough. I, th I think when we were doing safety one and safety two, I criticized Holnagel for when he moves on to the solution space, his solution just results in continuing to attack the old way of doing things. Navigating Safety is a weird book because it got published, I'm sure, without being finished. You, you look at the last couple of chapters and they're literally just, you know, chapter outlines. <laughs> and I mean, I've got a lot of sympathy for that because you can be very thorough and scientific about criticizing the status quo. And then if you apply that same rigor to your own solutions, you end up thinking, I can't say that, I don't have proof. Yeah. And Amal Birdie is a real scholar. I think he would have struggled with going into like full-on advocacy rather than critique mode. Yeah, no, fair, fair point. And his models and ideas, I think, are, are really useful to get us to reflect on the way that we are managing safety. But I think it's like you said, it's not so much putting out. Yeah, I sort of agree with you about not necessarily advocating for a different view, although we had authors like 
Holnagel and Decker and, and others come along and fill that void that had been created by, at least in part, by Amalberti's critique of the current safety management approach. Yes, absolutely. So Amalberti does have a conclusion section and it does have a few suggestions in it. Shall we go through them and Yeah, let's them? do that. Yep. So I guess the first thing to say is that Amalberti is a real techno-optimist. So he's, he's almost like the anti-Perot. Yeah, Perot says that as we start to introduce certain new technologies, they're just like inherently dangerous. Amalberti says that he thinks that that sort of fundamental limit that he's calculated that we seem to hit is he thinks that that is technology dependent and that as we move into the next generation of technology and the next generation, each generation will have a new limit. He thinks it will take a while to get there. So he thinks that like, you know, the difference between safety in the 70s and today is that we've got 70s technology, but we've had 30 years to optimise our performance with that technology. And he says, you know, as we introduce 2000s technology, it'll take us 20, 30 years to fully optimise safety against that technology, but it'll get us further. So he thinks that, you know, fundamentally, uh, in particular, he's, a, he's got this real railway style view that you know, ultimately the thing to do is automate everything reliably. <laughs> And that once you've got things automated and not dependent on humans, then they're going to be fundamentally, the limits will be safer. I don't really think that there's like evidence for or against. I think it's a, like, let's just say you know, that is a, the position that he takes. He also says that he thinks that the safety measures that we should take, so the ones that are most effective, depend on where we're optimised against that target. So the further we are away from the limits, the more effective it is to try to drive down the rate of errors. The closer we get, we shouldn't keep doubling down because that doubling down just not only won't help, it'll actually be start to be counterproductive. And then once a system gets really, really close, we should focus not on making it safer, but on maintaining it at its current level of safety. So we shouldn't be, particularly, he's essentially saying for aviation, don't want to make aviation any safer than it is. This is what we've got. The trick is keep aviation this safe, and that might be a different strategy to trying to make it safer. Yeah, I think I, I, I think those points are are really interesting points. And where you said, you know, maybe businesses need to measure different things depending on the safety of the system. So it may be perfectly acceptable to count errors and incidents uh, when you're having errors and incidents at the frequency of which all of your resources are consumed by correcting them. But you know, then as you get more optimized for safety, then you need to be measuring and paying attention to different things rather than as just blanket saying everyone should use these type of indicators rather than those type of indicators. I like the way Amalberti is one of the maybe theorists, well, I think we can call him a theorist, one of the theorists that why maybe his models haven't quite caught on, Drew, is because they've all been nuanced and they haven't been sort of simple enough as like here's the three, here's, you know, the four pillars of resilience engineering from Eric or here's the three principles of safety differently. He kind of says, well, but it's really context dependent and approaches need to vary. Uh, and maybe that's why his models were never quite simple enough to be popularized like Swiss cheese. There, there is one particular thing he says, which I think is very, very true. And I wish more people would pay attention to. And that is that he says that you can't. So the fundamental problem is that your number of he doesn't use this language, but your number of countable events is going down as you get safer. So you're making fewer things that are unambiguous errors or unambiguous incidents. And he says that you can't fix that problem by going to less direct metrics. 
Because as you move away from unambiguous errors to quasi-errors and quasi-incidents and precursors that might or might not be precursors, then you're losing your validity of those things. And it's pointless anyway, because you don't want to drive human error down further once you get to that point where your unambiguous things are so low. You want them just to be sitting at that level. Pretty much like every other person who has tried to fix the metrics problem, he's right about the problem. I think his solution is pointless. David, I'd be interested in your thoughts. So his solution is, he says, focus on incident volume monitoring rather than on investigating each incident. So he says, keep track of the total number of incidents you're having. And if that starts to swell, that's like you've got an aging platform and that's when you need to start worrying. So that says that something's like you failed to keep it low. Personally, I think that once you start to monitor incident volumes, you're just driving down reporting for no particularly good reason. But, um, you know, I think that sort of like contradicts what we understand about the politics and organisational pressures of reporting. But I think he's right about the problem, but I think it's not a problem that has an easy solution like that. Yeah, I think I can empathise with his point, you know, again, 20 years ago. And, and I think some of, some of that point is, is quite insightful, which is saying, okay, if we've only got one incident per million events, then there's no point really looking at that incident and changing the system for the other 999,000 times when, like, how do we know if any of this is systemic because our rates are so low? But, you know, then he goes, but keep an eye on it because if you suddenly go from one incident every million to one incident every 10,000, you've actually fallen out of that uh, that ultra-safe system bracket that, that I've defined and, you know, maybe you should go back into investigating every incident again because you've got those volumes of them. So I think he was being quite mathematical about saying, you're in this ultra-safe system, no need to look at it, focus on protecting your operation, but if you fall outside that realm, then your strategy should change again. Yeah, no, no, I think that makes logical sense. The, the question I'd have, and I, I think this might be an interesting place to talk just before we go into conclusions, is given that I don't think we can trust Amalberti's numbers. How do you as an organization know where you fall? How do you know whether you're an organization that can improve by trying to drive down errors? Or how do you know whether you're an organization that is close enough to safety that we should be employing other strategies? Now, that is a really great question that I'm not going to answer directly. Um, but, I, but, but I was thinking just a second ago when we talked about this need to, when you get your system to a level of safety that you are let's just call it satisfied with, whatever that is, then your task is to manage the system to that level. So if we think about aviation and, and whatever we say, you know, is it one to t one by 10 to the minus seven plane crashes for every takeoff, for every, you know, million or 10 million takeoffs, we have a, we have a plane crash. Then the question is, how do you manage the system to that level of safety? And it's like a, a, a relentless focus on not so much the the things that we talk about in safety too, but a lot of a lot of what Amalberti says, which is like the automation and the process. So the rigid guidelines around pilots and frequency and recency and and communication protocols and air traffic management requirements and airworthiness of aircraft is is actually a for a system that is already so safe, it's almost like make sure tomorrow looks exactly like today looked. So I guess that's I don't know how you know when you're going to get better by reducing errors any further, maybe there is, just thinking as I'm talking, Drew, maybe there is no distinct category. Maybe there's always value in trying to reduce errors and there's always value in trying to protect. 
you know, the state of operations. Well, I think the time it would be interesting to think about this strategically as a safety manager would be, let's say we're in an industry where fatalities were rare but distinct possibilities and we'd had several years without any fatalities, but we still had a number of hand injuries happening every year. You know, the, the temptation would be, okay, this is, the prob- this is the next problem to solve is to get down to further safety. We've got to divert attention towards dealing with these hand injuries. Whereas the alternative would be to say, look, we're happy in our industry. You know, this is the level of safety is that we have this small number of minor injuries. What we really should be devoting our safety attention to is keeping that stuff that we're doing well that is protecting us against those fatalities and maintaining the stability of those things and keeping watch that those things don't start to decay from complacency. Um, and I think that would be a really difficult choice as a safety manager because there, there always is this pressure to improve. You know, Claiming that we are staying steady is not often a easy thing to do. No, and I think this is where the theory and the science and the politics uh, and the practicalities have this kind of intersection point, um, which is why I think this idea of paradox in this paper is, is you know, Amalberti means it like the safer we get, maybe the the less our safety processes can continue to help us get 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 more safe. And maybe you're right, Drew. Maybe there's it's always it's always an and rather than an an or. You know, there's there's always going to be a desire for improvement. There's always going to be a desire for error reduction. There's always going to be a desire to make what we've already got work um, continue to work and work better. Um, and that's just a reality of organizations. So should we move on to takeaway messages? Yeah, let's do that. Do you want to kick us off? Sure. So I think the first big message is Amalberti says that the safety of any system or organization we're in has two limits. It's got a limit set by the underlying technology, and it's got a limit set by how much we're willing to genuinely optimize for safety and push towards that limit rather than for settling for something that is fairly away from that theoretical optimum for safety. And so if we like genuinely want to do a reset for safety, we need to do more than just push close to the limit. We need to basically invest in new operational capability, new ways of doing the work that we're doing with better technology that is fundamentally safer. So Drew, this idea of when we, even if we go back to some of Rasmussen's work, which is that we've got these competing operational goals and you've said, well, Amalberti said there about what's our genuine willingness to, what you would say, Drew, is put a thumb on the scale for safety at the expense of, you know, cost and production goals. You know, so here we're sort of saying to actually genuinely reset safety margins in our business, it's actually about investing in uh, resources and, you know, reducing um, production targets and some of these things, which allows that margin to come back rather than directly thinking that we can focus on improving safety margins by focusing on improving safety margins. So I was trying to think through what this would mean for a couple of examples. I think as an entire industry, how much we're willing to like, genuinely prioritise safety is often a political decision that is beyond our pay grade in a single organisation. So you like it or not, society has decided that aviation is allowed to spend more on safety. And as an individual airline or aircraft manufacturer, you're living in that environment where you are politically unable to take risks that could be taken in other industries. I think it's much harder if you're a taxi company to say, well, everyone else is charging this much. We're going to be the company that charges $2 extra a trip in order to be safer. 
I think it, there, there are some businesses that do it, that like set themselves out as like the quality alternative. And, you know, we, we just unashamedly cost more than other companies, but in return, you get more safety. Um, but it's, it's a hard thing to do. And often that decision is made outside of the safety environment. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, I think, you know, I think that idea of markets deciding is important because when you gave that taxi example, I mean, you could as a company say, you know, we are going to increase our cost by 40% and we're going to have two drivers in the car the whole time to make sure that, you know, one's spotting out for the other one and they swap every 30 minutes and they make sure that they're both are alert and driving carefully. But then you'd very much find that people wouldn't necessarily pay that premium for that increased safety. I think you're right, Drew. I think it is very much a political exercise and very much a, you know, and this is probably where we get the really important role of regulators to set some of these these margins for for industries. Well, the other extreme I was thinking of, David, was when we have something like a machine shop and the machine tools in that shop are retrofitted with guards that can be removed. The organization is spending money on behavioral safety. The regulator is pushing safety programs when really the thing that will make a step change in safety is to buy better tools to have more automation built into the tools, guards built into the tools, stricter regulation about what you can import into Australia in terms of machine tools. And I think sometimes we sacrifice at that technology end and then try to make up for it at the human error end. Um, And Amal Birdie's like saying, like, we need to just have our eyes open that we want a step change in safety. We don't do it through the next safety campaign. We do it through deciding actually we're getting moved to the safer way of doing work. Yeah, and the unpopular comment here to make with in terms of industry and organizations is that um, you know, while organizations have lots of these messages of safety as the first priority, capitalist nature of the the, the environment that companies operate in is you know, the, the pressures that they face to generate profits is so great that it's um it's very hard to see that that trade-off for safety being made at the levels of which Amalberto would probably say is required to make those companies ultra safe if they're regulators or, or there's no there's nothing bound on those organizations to do that yeah i think the thing that frustrates me sometimes is that the investment in capital equipment is a genuine investment um it can be a really good business decision that improves productivity improves safety whereas the safety program is a sunk cost even if it works it's preserving safety for a little bit for a little time with a negative return on investment for the business because you're spending money on the safety program with no increase in productivity. I think sometimes this isn't just like selfish trade-offs. It's actually bad decision-making that we sort of need to take a step back and make better decisions about how we set up our businesses, how we think about what is costing us money. Often we sort of like set these short-term incentives that sort of like cause the whole business to act against its own interests. Yeah, some of these. And, and just one example, Drew, that I give of an organization that, that did a, a one-day safety stand down as a way of telling their organization that it was, you know, how, how safety is so important, we're going to stop production for a whole day and we're just going to talk about safety. And it's going to cost us as a business more than a million dollars. Yeah, my, my comment to people involved in that was, surely you could find a better way to spend a million dollars and surely you don't want to put that sort of productivity pressure on your people for the rest of the week to catch up. Because of all of those, you know, is a warehousing and, and manufacturing facility of all the customer orders that still need to go out the door. I just find that insane that organizations think that that materially reduces risk in their business. So second takeaway, the idea of making things safer by making errors less likely 
becomes less and less useful the safer we are. Obviously, each person and each business needs to have some idea about where they're currently sitting on that curve, but we need to be aware that it is a curve and that as you get safer and safer, just working harder and harder at making things safe doesn't work. Um, third one is that expertise is not about being free from error. It's about being competent to recognize and correct from errors. So that I think is one of the most like fascinating and important takeaways is this a, so we're not talking this isn't really an argument for or against zero harm but it is an argument against zero error you know we shouldn't be thinking of no one makes a mistake everyone does things properly all the time even as a desirable goal let alone a possible goal we should think our our, our goal is preventing the accidents and to do that it's okay and desirable that people are making mistakes and fixing those mistakes so drew then do you want to do you want to just talk about your fourth point here about um less regulated industries Yes. So, so th this one, I've got it as a takeaway. I, I honestly don't know whether it's good or bad myself, but Amel Birdie leaves open the idea that in less regulated industries, so ones where accidents are more common, that driving down safety, sorry, driving improved safety by trying to reduce human error is actually the logical and sensible way to be doing safety. And I honestly don't know what to think about that. I think he's got like a really strong argument that that becomes less and less useful. But the open question is, is it sometimes the best way to do things? And I don't think Amal Birdie answers it. He just leaves it as a question. Yeah, and I think that continues to come up in, I mean, a lot of Sydney Decker's writing and, and other current theorists writing about error traps and failing safely and these types of things. So I think it's, it's, it's about, you know, even one of the hot principles about error is normal. So I think we all, not we, I think many, I don't even know, what, what can we even say on this podcast? Can we say a generally accepted idea? Maybe there's a generally accepted idea that error is going to happen in our operation. And the current theories kind of say, try not to build error traps in to make, you know, just to set people up to make to make problems and try to make sure that you have an idea of what, what possible problems could arise and have a means for if those problems occur and those errors are made for the system to kind of fail safely or the person to fail safely or, or, or make an, an error safely. But I don't think anyone sort of said too much about, you know, what to do, what to do about it. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me put my own position this way. I think it is definitely desirable that we improve our designs and our organisational conditions to make it easier for people to work successfully with fewer mistakes. I don't think we know as much as we think we know about what sort of processes lead to those designs and those organizations. No, I like that. I like that, Drew. So the question that we asked this week was, why does safety get harder as systems get safer? Do you want to have a go? Uh, so Amalberti's answer is that for very safe systems, safety doesn't come from suppressing errors, but from keeping them controlled within an acceptable margin. And safety gets harder because our traditional approaches to safety don't tell us how to do that. They just tell us how to work in that space where we're reducing obvious errors. Thanks, Drew. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us in the discussion on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. <laughs>